Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that today you would remind us of the truth that you are our creator and we are your creations. Lord, I pray that you would bring us into a place of humility, a place of submission to mystery, a place of um, greater willingness to let you be who you are and not fit into our box. Lord, I pray that as Pastor Cameron seeks to diligently and faithfully communicate your word, I pray that you would uh, fill him with your spirit to do so, that you would help him to lay aside uh, himself, that he might decrease and you might increase in the preaching of the word. And Lord, I ask that you would give him, give him your spirit to rely upon as he brings what you, he feels is being pressed upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I turn it completely over, there is something that a uh, preaching, preaching pastor, preaching professor of my college once did, and I think it's something that occasionally I love to encourage congregations to do, and that's to be prayerful throughout a sermon. It's to, to, if you think of it, be praying for Pastor Cameron as he's delivering the sermon today to perhaps might he be hearing from the Lord as he's giving it. So if you feel led today throughout the service, be just pause a moment and pray for it. Pray for the word to be well received and well preached. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Luke. It's good to see you all this morning, Conduit. How are we? I'm so glad that um, I would say the majority of you are showing people what your names are. Like we did, we did this, you know, as kind of a fun, like funny joke, haha, and also not as a funny joke, haha. Uh, the name tags because I had several. I, I always talk with people here who are like, you know, I've been going to church here for three years, and I walk by people every week, and I'm like, hey, buddy. Good to see you, and um, and I should know their name, but I don't know their name, and they don't know my name. And listen, we cannot live in we cannot live in true gospel community with one another if we don't know even the most basic aspect of who we are as people, which is our the names that we have, right? Who we are. So this is one of those like. This is one of those ways where we're trying to take the awkwardness out of you having to say to someone whose name you should know, yeah, hey, what's your name? Because I don't know it, but I should know it. Now you can just pretend like you always knew it, right? You always knew it. And here's the thing. I am, okay, so at the end of the month, um, we're going to play, play a little bit, we're going to play a little game, right? Um <laughs> We're going to play a little name game, um, and there will be prizes involved, all right? So uh, we will try to make it as fun as we possibly can. So either get really nervous about it right now or get really excited about it, I, whatever one you want, okay? So as, uh, as Pastor Luke had uh, been talking, uh, was talking about, and as we've been talking about uh, for the last few weeks, we are in a, uh, a sermon series on the broad broader topic of eternity, which encompasses like, man, you, 
you could, you could preach for a year on this, right? Um, and so we've tried, to, we, we've tried to pull out a few different themes, right? The first, the first week is the reality of, like, that Jesus promised that even after his ascension, that Jesus promised that he would return. He promised his disciples, specifically John chapter 14, that he would return, that he would come and take them to be where he was going. And that if they didn't know the way, that he was going to show them the way. That matter of fact, he was the way to the Father, right? Um, and last week we talked about um, uh, last week we talked about the timing of Jesus' return. When is Jesus going to return? And despite some, um, I don't know, well-meaning or wolves in sheep clothing, um, pastors and theologians throughout uh, time, uh, Jesus himself says that no one knows the day or the hour that he will return. Uh, not him, not the angels in heaven, but only, but only the Father. Right? And that the ways in which you and I prepare ourselves for the return of Jesus is not trying to figure out the complicated signs and symbols, the hidden meanings behind the truth of God's word that he has given to us, but to live in a posture and a pursuit of holiness ourselves, to take upon ourselves the nature and character of Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ, and then as we clothe ourselves with the righteousness of God that is in Jesus Christ. We are living in the reality of being prepared for his coming. You know? And so as you pursue Jesus, and as you pursue Jesus with all that you are, right? And someone said, Well, are you ready for are you ready for Jesus to come back? Like, like yeah. I, um, we're we're, we're always ready, right? As we pursue Jesus by faith, as we live in holiness, as we live in obedience to his word, as we are walking in the power of the spirit that is within us, we are actively and always ready for the return of Jesus. Um, this week, we, um, we are going to talk about what Jesus will do in his return. Meaning, what is the, when Jesus comes back, what are the things that he's coming back to do? We're going to talk similarly about that same question or topic next week. Um, and um, and we're, going to, we're going to let the Scripture speak to us about what, um, what we believe by faith Jesus is coming to do. Question for us. Maybe semi-rhetorical. I guess you can answer it if you want to. Um, the two questions, is there a heaven? And I guess the inverse of that is um, after you answer the question either, either in your own mind or whatever, is there a heaven? Answer the question, is there a hell? If there's one, is there another? Uh, this was a question that was asked to, it's been asked several different times over, you know, like as a as a um, as a large format survey question to American, just American people in general. The last, the most recent figures that I could find is that the Pew Research Group, which generally does um, broad-based surveys 
around things of a spiritual or faith-based nature in the United States, asked Americans their belief on the existence of an actual heaven and the belief on the existence of an actual hell. And in, at least in 2021, so this is like kind of post or middle of pandemic where, you know, fear was at a fear was at an apex and hopelessness was at an all-time high and um, you know, we were it, everyone everyone loved to press the panic button on absolutely everything in life. That the, these were the results that in 2021, at least according to the Pew Research Group, 72% of Americans believed in heaven or in some, some type of positive afterlife experience. 72% of Americans. That's pretty high, right? Um, when asked, when the, same, when the same people were asked about the belief in the existence of hell or a negative afterlife experience, only 65% of Americans um, noted that they believed in, in some place similar to or that would be considered um, hell. So 72% believed that, yeah, there is a positive afterlife experience. 65% only 65% believe that there was a negative afterlife experience, to put it very, very generally, right? In the Christian faith, we know these two places as heaven and hell. Okay. So those numbers in and of themselves should, say, should, should tell us that there's already a little bit of a break in belief about what happens next. About what the... Re- about what the reality of life after we live in this physical body is. Now, I'm going I'm to be perfectly honest with you, even as someone, I've been, I've been following Jesus for, um, you know, like actually really, truly following Jesus for like a little over 25 years or so. Most of my life. I'm only 40, right? Most of my life I've been... Um, I've been following Jesus for all of my adult life. I've been preaching the word. Right, this is the only real job, big boy job I've ever had. Okay, and I'm confident. I, I'm 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 confident. It's not boastful. It's not prideful. I'm just saying, like I, um, like I've spent my adult life. I've I've given my life to study the word and to teach it to other people. And even in the reality of what the what what I've studied and where like where my life has come from and where the Lord has taken me and all all that that exists when we when I enter into these periods right see I'm so nervous I'm backing into my own microphones right when we enter into or we step into topics or conversations of um, uh, that that are this important, but also relatively controversial, uh, or absolutely like spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally heavy. Right? You there's the reality that there's a there's a significant weight to this conversation. Uh, I, I believe that there that there is no conversation that is heavier. I believe that there is no, um, there are no amount of scriptures that are more important. 
even in the midst of how difficult they are to hear. And so, um, you know, when Pastor Luke says, hey, pray for me in the middle of preaching about these things, pray for me in the middle of preaching about these things because, um, you know, my biggest fear in life is to misrepresent the Word of God. And I never would do so intentionally, but um, I think these are incredibly important things to talk about. When, when we talk about the realities of things like heaven and the things and things like places like heaven and places like hell, um, there is a natural, I think you can, all, you can all feel it right now in the room, right? There is this natural tendency to get a little shifty in our seats. Like, I'm trying to find a com- comfortable spot to kind of sink down in. It, can, it, gets a, it can be a little uncomfortable. And... I would say it absolutely should be. It absolutely should be a moment of um, relative discomfort. If, if, if you and I, if, if we are not moved in some way spiritually, if we are not moved in some way mentally or emotionally, if we are not moved even some, in some ways physically, by the existence of both heaven and hell, we, we may want to call into question whether or not we have fully embraced the eventuality of our citizenship in one of those two places. If it is an unconcerning topic to us, I would say that we have not, we have not legitimately grasped the eventuality presence either in an actual place called heaven or an actual place called hell. But the reality is here, uh, and even the numbers, right, show this, is that it's not usually the discussion about heaven that makes us feel uncomfortable. How many people here are just dreading the day that the pastor talks about the glorious realities of eternal presence of God in heaven? No one, right? Everyone's like, yeah, give us the good stuff, right? Give, give, us, give us the good stuff. It's the discussion about hell that makes the wooden pews feel a little bit more wooden, Because we believe, we both believe in and we preach about a Jesus here at Conduit who is the Lord of love, who is the author of all grace. Yet, he spoke more about hell than he did heaven and not by just a little bit. By a overwhelmingly significant margin. Jesus talked about, spoke on, preached, preached about, warned people more about the reality of hell than he did in heaven. He spoke, he spoke more vividly and in more detail of hell than all of the other biblical authors combined by a long shot. 
to give just a, like a brief pass through, Jesus says that in Luke chapter 16 that hell is a place of eternal torment. In Mark chapter 9 that it is a place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not stop decomposing flesh. Where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 13. And from which there is no return even to warn loved ones in Luke chapter 16. Jesus says um, that hell is a place of outer darkness in Matthew chapter 25. Comparing, comparing it to a burning garbage heap in Matthew chapter 10, a place called Gehenna. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned about the absolute reality of hell all throughout the Gospels. And so why, as the numbers seem to suggest in that general poll, but also, maybe even somewhere deep down in your own heart, have you fully grasped onto the idea of heaven as a trajectory and citizen and place of citizenship for those who believe by faith in Christ, but you're really, really maybe just struggling with the reality or the idea of a place called hell, a place that Jesus explains um, in great and vivid detail. Why do, our, why do our hearts shift at that reality but not the other? Why does that make us really uncomfortable to think of? The question is, why, why, would, we, why would we hesitate or refuse to accept the reality of a place like hell? I think, our, I think the conjecture of Scripture, the conjecture of all the biblical witnesses um, is that to accept the reality of hell, we must come to accept the reality that we are not independent, autonomous, without accountability, all on our own, making our own way, charting our own path, making our own decisions, living our own lives all on our own. In order to um, really grasp the reality of hell, we must come to the realization that we are not God. That we are not Lord of our lives. Cool. All right. Who here likes Frank Sinatra? Okay. Let's raise him a little higher. Okay. Okay, Frank Sinatra. Okay, so I don't have a strong opinion on Frank Sinatra other than I don't like him. Um, <laughs> I'm not here to pick on him, right? But I am here to pick on one of his songs. Okay? <laughs> Someone knows it back there. Vinny, Vinny knows it. Frank Sinatra sang this song called My Way. You ever heard this song before? I'm going to read the lyrics to you, right? Because it be, I'm not going to sing it, no. Uh, because it, it, really, it really sums up and encapsulates this idea, right, that no one, no one tells me how I should live my life. 
My Way by Frank Sinatra. And now the end is near. And so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, traveled each and every highway, and more, much more. I did it my way. Regrets I've had but few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And more, much, much more. I did it my way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall. And I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things that he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows and I did it my way. A radical, deep-seated sense of I do not need anyone, especially God. I'm going to give you the last kind of like truth of the message right now. If we live our lives in a radical autonomy and independence, declaring with every step and every decision and every relationship that we have, I do not need God. Then God, in His grace, and mercy to you will give you eternally exactly what you want. The absence of Him forever. There's this kind of funny tattoo. It's not really funny. It's kind of funny, but it's, I don't know. It's kind of funny, but not. I don't know how to explain it. It's this one. You, you've seen it, right? It's a t- tattoo that says... Only God can judge me. Right? When you see this tattoo, right, and I'm not like, I guess if you've got this tattoo, I'm kind of judging you right now, but I'm <laughs> not really, but all right. We can redeem this, okay? We can redeem this. Right? Only God can judge me. Um is uh is a kind of can be a sentiment, right? That we um, that we say or we use or we put on my body that says, "I am accountable to no man, no person, no being, 
Only God can judge me. The question then we ask is like, okay, only God can judge me. Are you prepared for him to do just that? Because usually, right, the sentiment here is, as I am a completely autonomous person, the way I live my life, the things that I've done, what I have said, how I have responded to the gospel itself is no one's business but my own, and I'll do it my way. And the reality here is that not only is this kind of ironically true, but it is actually true. Is that indeed God will judge us. He will. And, and, and until... And until we come to a until we come to a place of realizing that I am not the master of my own ship. I am not the captain of my own ship. I am not the master of my soul. That that I that I have been created by a loving father who wishes to fill me with the with with his purpose for my life so that I may walk it out in obedience and experience the true fulfillment of all that he has created me to be, right? If we're not grasping onto the reality that I am not God, I am not Lord, I do not make the plans for my life, we will continually run aground of our own sense of trying to make a purpose or a plan for our life. And eventually that ship will shipwreck. So we talked about where we're at, right? Where we've been, that Jesus is returning. He is coming back. That no one knows when, not the Son, not the angels in heaven, only the Father. That pursuing holiness through faith in Jesus is the way that we prepare for his coming. Not we're not trying to we're not trying to figure out the complicated decoder ring type of thing in the scripture like that Lord has the, Lord, the Scripture has made it very clear. There's not, a, there's not a super secret code that you must find out within here to see exactly when it is, right? That, that it's coming like a thief in the night. Clothe yourselves, right, with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Walk by faith in Jesus every day and you are eternally ready. You will not miss His coming. But what is Jesus coming to return? What is Jesus returning to do? Well, first off, we need to realize that the, that the way in which Jesus is coming again is much different than the way that he came the first time, right? We have the sentimentality of the Christmas story, which tells us that Jesus came as a humble babe, right? He was laid in a manger, and the wise gifts, right? And we put up Christmas trees, and we tell the story, and we have a candlelight service and we celebrate the hope, the peace, the love, the joy that comes with the incarnation of God in human flesh called Jesus, right? And it is like, thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you for not standing far off and leaving us all here all on our own. Thank you for coming to be with us so that you may save us from our own selves, and it's like, man, the Christmas story is great. I love hearing about the coming of Jesus. When Jesus left and said, hey guys, I'm coming back, I'm going to come back, okay? 
don't worry, you're not going to miss it. Because there were some who were like, Jesus, what, what, what if someone says, hey, they saw you come back way out in the desert. Should we go over there? Talk about a little bit about that next week. But Jesus is like, guys, just going to let you know, you're not going to miss it when I come back again. It will not be confusing. It will not be hidden. You will not miss it if you're not in the right part of the world. Right? It's not like you're going to be sleeping and Jesus comes back on the other side of the world and you hear about it on Facebook the next day. Right? Like, no, not going to happen like that. We'll know. Uh, John, the guy, uh, the Apostle John, who was exiled to an um, island called Patmos, um, had a spiritual vision of what would happen um, upon the return of Christ and during the end times, right? The lead up until eternity. He recorded the content of that vision and we now have it in the book we call Revelation. All right? And without going into a complete study on the book of Revelation today, we see that at a certain point in Revelation that John has a vision of how or the manner in which Jesus returns the second time or Jesus comes the second time. And it is significantly different than the way in which he came the first time. Right? Humble, gentle, quiet, lowly, coming to serve. When Jesus comes back the second time, or Jesus comes back, I want you to hear the way in which the vision describes the return of Jesus. We're in Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. This is John speaking. He's describing what he's seeing in this spiritual vision, right? About the coming or returning of Jesus. I saw, John says, heaven. Trying, uh, try to picture this in your mind if you can. Don't just hear the words. But even if you have to close your eyes to create a visual picture in your mind, that's okay here. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. 
listen, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The way in which Jesus returns is much different than the way he comes the first time. He comes in humility and gentleness, incarnating the love of God in human form. And now he returns treading the winepress of the wrath and fury of God Almighty. He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. What is the thing that Jesus is returning to do? If that's the way in which he is coming, what is it that he is returning to do? We have three things that we're going to talk about. They all happen relatively simultaneously. Jesus is coming, returning, to bring judgment upon both those who are living and those who have already died. So at the moment that Jesus returns, he will bring judgment upon those who are still living, and he will bring judgment upon those who um, have died before his return. We're going to talk a little bit about the kind of the sequence of like the actual judgment and what that will look like next week when we talk about, we're going to talk about the reality of resurrection next week, as well as uh, we're talking mostly about hell today. We're going to talk mostly about heaven next week, so don't worry, there's more. Um, <laughs> but Jesus is coming to bring judgment upon uh, the living and the dead. In fact, we're still in the book of Revelation, and in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, after Jesus has returned, we get a picture of the judgment seat of Christ, that the dead are standing before the throne, and the books of life were opened, and they were judged according to what they had done and not done in response to the gospel. Uh, let's read here what actually happens in these moments in John's vision, Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in these books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, the death, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown also into the lake of fire. Now, after um, 
at the moment of judgment or in the midst of judgment, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. It says in verse 14, that is the second death. And if anyone's name was not written in this book of life, anyone's name not written in the life that records those who have responded by faith to Jesus Christ, they also were thrown into the fire at this moment. That there is an inescapable reality of us standing before the rider on the white horse whose name is faithful and true, who has written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And no matter how many tickets you have talked your way out of in this world, there is no way that we talk ourselves out of the accountability for how we have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ when we stand before him who judges all the living and the dead. This is certainly the vision that John had, but this is not the only, the only place in all of the Scripture that we see this same type of, um, this, this same sentiment, this same reality. We see it in the epistles as well, the kind of smaller books at the end of the New Testament. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. 1 Peter speaking to, um, speaking to the followers of Jesus who have been um, under a significant period of persecution and separation from their community. He says this to them. He says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in things like debauchery and lust, drunkenness and orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They, or those who do these things, they think it's strange that you, you who follow Jesus Christ, right? That you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And because you don't, they heap abuse on you. Essentially saying, hey, look, we, we see the way that the world lives, we see the way that even we have lived before the grace of Jesus Christ has transformed us in things like debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. And the world looks at a believing population, they look at the church and they think it's strange that we do not plunge ourselves into this sea of dissipation that they also do. And because we don't, they heap abuse on us is what Peter says, but then he says this, but they, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That, that not only will you and I not escape, right, uh, the accountability before the throne of grace with Jesus, but the world will as well, that, that there, there is no one that escapes this. Now, we've already said, we've already tried, we've already made the case that Jesus himself speaks more about hell than anyone in all of Scripture by a long shot, right? And so let's hear from Jesus on the matter. Now, we all know that, or we, we, you may know or you may not know that Jesus often taught in the form of parables, meaning he took the reality, the spiritual reality, and he formed it in a way that those who are meant to hear, hear, and those who were, had hardened their heart to the message of God could not hear what he was trying to communicate. 
parables, right? We have the parable of the prodigal son. We have the parable of the sower. Pastor Luke preached on that a few months ago. Today we're going to look at the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew is the very first book in the New Testament of your Bible. It's one of the accounts of Jesus' life. And there's two parts to this. There's Jesus telling of the parable, and then there's Jesus explaining the parable to his disciples after they ask him, hey, could you explain that to us? Because it sounds a little weird, Lord, given that you're like all about love and grace and gentleness and mercy, but this seems a little heavy. Let's listen to the parable first and then listen to Jesus' explanation second. Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who sowed good seed in their field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, the owner replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull up all those weeds? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may also root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Um, you know, about six verses down, starting at verse 36 in the same chapter. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Well, geez, okay. <laughs> There's, I wish, no, I don't wish. I'm glad that I don't have to do any interpretive gymnastics here for you to explain to you who everyone in the parable is, right? That, that the Son of Man is the one who sowed good seed, right, by faith into the world. Right? And, and those, who, those who receive it by faith, right, grow up to be healthy wheat. But the enemy also comes along and sows his own seed, those who are weeds that grow up alongside of the wheat. And in his 
patience and forbearance, the Lord allows both to grow up together until it is time to harvest. And there's always the day of harvest. Where, where now the weeds are plucked up out of the ground, bundled together, and what do they do? They go into the fire. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. It's like Jesus' way of saying, um, you don't want to miss this message. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus is coming. Jesus is returning. And one of the things that he will do is to judge the living and the dead. And those who have responded to the good seed that has been sown into their life through the gospel of Jesus Christ will be like the wheat that grows up and is harvested for eternal righteousness. And those who, and those who by their evil rebellion of God and His grace have decided that they will be a God unto themselves, will be like the weeds that will be gathered up, bundled, and thrown into the fiery furnace. The second thing that Jesus is coming to do, what is Jesus coming to do? Jesus is coming to defeat, not to just judge the living and the dead, but to defeat and destroy the wickedness, the wickedness in the world, and to bring justice to those who have suffered under the weight of evil and wickedness. Uh, we we um, we talk a lot about, or we we read a lot about um, the uh, the Christian response to being wronged in our lives. Right, we're wronged significantly. And maybe as a fleshly response, we desire to, um, to get justice for ourselves, right? Someone does something to us, we want to do something back to them as a response of our flesh, right? And, 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 and Jesus and all of Scripture proclaims, right, hey, look, um, our response in the midst of being wronged is forgiveness and forbearance because it, vengeance is the Lord's to bring about. And we think that that's such a cop-out sometimes, right? If we let it sit on our flesh, we're like, oh, so just nothing happens to them? I just bear the brunt of the wrong that has been done to me, of the wickedness and evil that has been done to me. I, I, like, I am not, there's no justice for what I have experienced at all. And that's what it feels like, right? Because our perspective is like we're wearing horse blinders on the timeline of life, right? Where we see only the moments that we are living in and we don't see 
the totality of the situation from an eternal perspective. And what the Word of God says is that the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, that the return of Jesus is not just a moment where He will judge the living and the dead, but He will also bring about the justice of the wicked, wicked things that have been done to us and the world that we have been waiting for all along. The vengeance is mine. I will repay it, says the Lord. This is the culmination of the moments that everything that has been done evil, wrong, wicked, unjust is made right and that Jesus pays, um, pay, like, pays them their due or the price for their, the penalty of their price. As a, for instance, in Scripture, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to his church in Thessal- a city called Thessalonica. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, the context that Paul is writing here, he says this, uh, the, the, the Thessalonians essentially are suffering under significant persecution as followers of Jesus. And they are doing an excellent job of not reacting with injustice, but persevering and enduring in the midst of the trial that they are going through. Now, Paul encourages them that God is just and he will vindicate them. We read here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, or yeah, first, no, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm sorry. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 2. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's church, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all of the persecutions and trials that you are doing. Paul's like, I boast about you and the way that you're persevering and enduring in the midst of the trials and persecutions that you are facing. Awesome job, church. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Verse 6, listen. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When will this happen? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Sound familiar? He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed this testimony. For Paul, God's vindication and justice for us was forward-looking. This will happen. God is just. He will repay for the wickedness that has been done to us and in the world 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. The writer Peter says essentially the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He said that these things have come, these trials, these persecutions, these difficulties in your life, they have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when? When Jesus Christ is revealed. So that you and I, we stand, we stand in a place of future and coming vindication and justice for all the wickedness, for all the evil, for all the disaster that has been wrought on our lives through the evil, for, through the evil of others. That God is coming back in Jesus Christ to make it all right. To defeat and destroy wickedness and to bring justice to a world that knows only evil, especially evil to the children of God. That Jesus is coming back to vindicate those who have, been, who have believed in him from the suffering of an unjust and wicked world. Number three, what is Jesus coming back to do? Jesus is coming back to inaugurate the fulfillment of the kingdom by laying bare the current creation and welcoming a new one. This is not something that often gets talked about in um, Christian theology about the end times, uh, but it, what is the future of even the world, the creation that we live in, and what is, the, what, what, is the, what is the place that we will live eternally with God in his presence? Hopefully talk a little bit about that, right, next week. But one of the things that Jesus comes to do is to inaugurate the, the, era, of, um, the, the era of the future kingdom, what we are waiting for, the place that we will be with him forever, and that by doing that, he's going to lay bare the creation, the current creation, and welcome and create a new one. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we see, the, uh, we see the Apostle Peter talk about just this reality. We read this scripture last week as well. He says, first of all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Okay, sounds about right. They will say, read this in sarcastic tone, okay? Well, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. What is Peter saying here? Hey, those who scoff at the coming and return of Jesus have forgotten that there was once a time where the Lord destroyed the world by water. The world will also be destroyed again, but just like Jesus came the first time differently than he came this, differently than he's going to come the second time, the second destruction of the world is going to look a little bit different than the first. The first was with water. The second, the world is being reserved for destruction by fire. That at the coming of Jesus Christ, this will be destroyed by the, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of God, ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Don't take that literally. It's a figure of speech, okay? I'm serious. Don't be like, well, if a thousand days is a year, and a year is a thousand days, and all. there was this many years and days since Jesus was returned. I mean, don't take it. It's, it's a figure of speech, okay? Our time is not like the Lord's time. Think about it like that. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Listen, you want to hear the gospel, the goodness and mercy of God in the midst of a heavy, heavy word about judgment and destruction of all things? It's this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. It's not like God is just sitting up there being slow in fulfilling the promise to return. It's this. It's that he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The slowness of God to come is not him forgetting about the promise that he has made to judge the living and the dead, or to establish his kingdom, or to bring vindication for the injustice that's been done to your life. His slowness is about his patience and forbearance at seeing people come to repent of their sin and turn to him by faith. But regardless, Peter says, the day of the Lord in verse 10 will come like a thief. The heavens, listen, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? That's what we talked about last week. You ought to live holy and godly lives as though you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, listen, this is next week's message, right? But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. You know that you will not live in heaven for eternity? Do you know that? That the Bible very, very clearly says that God is going to destroy the earth that we live in, create a new one, and that will be the abode of men in the full presence of God. 
Not sitting on the clouds and angel, with angels and playing harps, feeling this kind of like um, out-of-body, um, spiritual, wispy, walk-through-walls, because that's really creepy experience. No, but resurrected and glorified bodies, right? Bodies that you can touch, right? Bodies that eat food, right? That we are resurrected in the same manner in which Jesus himself was resurrected from the dead. And guess what? The disciples were like, I want to touch the body to make sure it's real. And Jesus eating with them on the beach. Do you have anything to eat? He says, I'm a little famished after being, you know, dead, but now back. Right? And so, and so our existence in resurrection is the same as that which Jesus experienced, which is bodily but glorified, which is the same but mysteriously different because God has, is going to raise everything by fire and create a new heaven and new earth in righteousness. Here's one thing that I have never experienced. We're, we're, we're oh Lord, help us. I got a lot of notes left. Um, here's one thing. We're going to get there, folks, okay? Here's one thing that I, in almost 20 years of ministry, have never experienced, okay? Never have I ever experienced someone saying, you know, I really, I really want to go to hell, actually. I mean, you see people post really stupid things on the internet like all the time. You go to heaven for the view, you go to hell for the company, um, right? <laughs> Please don't ever let me see you put anything like that on Facebook because I'm coming at you, okay? <laughs> I don't ever see anyone say, you know, I, yeah, I, I think I want hell. I want to go to hell. But you do see people walk every day, all the time, with a posture and attitude of complete independence from the Lord. I will do it my way. My heart is unsurrendered to God. I am unwilling to bend to the will of him, I scoff at the mention of knowing or bowing or kneeling before some God because of a radical independence that is essentially my heart saying, I don't want God. I have not met a single person in all of my life that says, I want hell. But I have met lots and lots and lots of people who said, I got no time for God. I got no time for him. Let me tell you, there is not a substantial difference there. There is not a substantial difference. In Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, the Apostle Paul explains that God, in both his wrath and his justice against those who reject him, gives them up to the sinful passions of their heart. That those, that those who continually say to the Lord, I have no desire for you, I have, no, I have no will to follow you, I do not surrender my heart to you, I am, a, I am a man or I am a woman of my own choosing, of my own path, 
that the Lord gives them up to the hardness and the sinfulness of their lives. The great theologian J.I. Packer says this. He says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for our human choice to reject Him. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping Him or without God forever worshiping themselves. Hear this reality. If the thing that you want most in this life is to be your own master, then the holiness of God will become to you an absolute agony. And the presence of God will be a terror that you flee forever. Last, last bit of um, scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 16. I don't know that I have this on the screen for you. But in Luke chapter 16, we see, starting at verse 19, this really, we're almost done, I promise. I know we're late. But in Luke chapter 16, we see this um, really significant story starting at verse 19 the rich man and Lazarus. Let me read a bit of it to you this morning and then we're going to move on. There was a rich man. This is the word, these are the words of Jesus. Okay, Jesus is teaching this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up. And saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now He's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn, warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment either. Abraham replied, look, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they have all the scripture. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes, then they will really repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Verse 20. 
Jesus tells us here of a rich man who goes to hell and who is now in torment and in horrible thirst because of the fire and the agony of his experience. Some interesting insights, I think. One is that he's aware and can see into heaven. He's aware keenly of the choice that he has made. He urges Abraham to send a messenger and warn his still living family about the reality of the agony that he is facing in the place where he is at. But it doesn't really strike us from reading it as like a matter of compassion, like a I care for them so much. I don't want them to make the same mistakes that I have made. Please go and, and, and tell them. It doesn't really strike us as a matter of compassion, but really as a matter, a little bit of as blame shifting here. He essentially is inferring that he didn't have all of the information that he needed in order to avoid the punishment that he's receiving. He didn't have sufficient enough chances to respond to the goodness of God. This is clearly the point that's being um, communicated here because of the response of Abraham to his request. Abraham's response is forceful. And he answers that, listen, people in this life have been well-informed about the reality of both heaven and hell throughout all of the scriptures, all of Moses, all of the prophets. Look, there's, there's no questioning that you are not where you are because of lack of information. You had the information. Your family has the information just like you do. It's intriguing to find that the rich man had this attitude even where he was in the midst of the fire and agony of hell. Even knowing that he is in hell and knowing that God sent him there, he is in deep, deep denial, angry at God, unable to admit that it was a just decision by the Lord, just simply wishing that he could be less miserable, but in no way willing to repent of his sin or seek the presence of God. There is, in no, there, there is no indication that the man is like, I have made a grave error, Heavenly Father. I repent of my wickedness. Please come and save me from this moment. There is only the indication that the hardness of the man's heart remains even where he is that he, even in that moment, is willing to say, I have no use for God. I've got no use for him. I'm going to end with this. There are times where um, there are times when we have where we fall into moments of walking with God or responding with the appearance of faith in order to 
um, protect ourselves from the punishment that exists should we not walk by faith, right? That, our, that, the, that the measure of our relationship with Jesus is measured by fear of hell rather than the delight and joy of walking in his presence. I mean, we have somehow said that like our relationship, I'm going to put it, like break it down as low as we can go. A relationship with Jesus is not just a good fire insurance policy, right? It's not just like, hey man, I, don't, I just don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to walk with Jesus, right? I, I just want to go with heaven. I just, I just want to go to heaven. That's really all, all I want to do. Listen, the reality of both heaven and hell is that it, both of those locations are based on our desire to either want to be in the presence of God or want to escape from the presence of God in our lives. We don't go to hell for the view, or we don't go to heaven for the view, right? We don't go to, go to heaven for the streets paved with gold or the, the, the river of life or the fruit on the trees or that there's no more tears or no more mourning, right? Our pursuit of heaven is not a pursuit of a location. Our pursuit of heaven is a pursuit of who is there, not the location itself, right? That, that heaven is the location of the one that we pursue. That our, our, our hearts are turned towards the presence of God and saying, Lord, it is not the gift of the location that you're at that I desire. It is you yourself. Lord, I want, I want you to fill me. I want your presence to engulf me. It is, the, it is your spirit that I want to live in me. Fully surrendered, laying my, laying my life out on the table. I want nothing that is my own. I want everything that is in you. And listen, we get heaven as a bonus for desiring the presence of God in our lives. And we get hell as the natural consequence of saying, Lord, I want nothing to do with you for all of my life. The attitude, the posture that we walk with in this life is the posture that follows us into the next. The pursuit of God leads us to the place where God eternally is. The rejection of God leads us to the place where God eternally is not. In his grace and forbearance, God gives us exactly the thing that our heart pursues and desires the most either the fullness of his presence or the absence of his presence. And so, brothers and sisters, I cannot say it clearly enough. Pursuing God through relationship with Jesus Christ is the only life you are meant to live. But God will not force himself upon you. God is gracious and loving and kind even to the extent of giving you exactly what you want as you reject him. But his patience is 
his desire to see you saved. His patience is his desire for you to repent, to turn from your sin and wickedness, to trust in Jesus by faith that you might receive through him the prize of heaven, the presence of his spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, take their place on stage as we go back into worship. That was a long one. Way to stick with it. Okay? I know it was long. Not as long as hell will be, but... Um. <laughs> uh. I kid, right? Because we got to like... Uh, Get the awkwardness of the uh, moment out of here, right? But listen, here's what I want you to hear. If you sit in a place this morning of knowing that you have and you are consistently rejecting the move of God in your life, the presence of God in your life, but you are ready to say, I no longer want to live with the hardness of heart towards the one that has created me and desires for my my salvation then I want you to know that that today is the day that you can do that now is the moment that you can do that Uh, the word of God says that if you hear his voice today do not harden your heart and if you hear the word of the Lord even now in these moments Speaking to your spirit to say, it is you that I'm calling. It is you that I desire. Come to discover the forgiveness, the grace, the love and purpose that I have for you as you receive me by faith. Then today is your day. And today can be your day. It requires something of you. It requires a willingness to surrender lordship of your own life. To listen both in obedience and in faith to the Lord. To let go of the sin that so the scriptures say so easily entangles us and allow the Lord to free us from all sin and into all righteousness. If that's a decision that you would want to make this morning, I want to invite you, Pastor Luke would want to invite you to make, a, to make that a public decision. To come forward to the altar as we're singing. To say, to say Lord, this is, I, I want to make, I'm, I'm not going to make this in the secrecy of my own heart. I want to make this in the public forum of the church. I am coming to follow Jesus. And Pastor Luke and myself or others will be, will be um, honored 
to pray with you as you surrender your heart to the Lord to experience the fullness of his presence forever. Let's stand. If that's a decision that you would like to make, we welcome you forward as we start to sing and we're ready, uh, we're ready to receive you. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, would you bless us with your presence? Lord, would you call people to faith in you? Lord, would your spirit move in such a significant way that the truth of your word would break through the hardened crust of all of our hearts and change who we are from the inside out. Lord, let us respond this morning by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Holy are you, Father in heaven, and holy are you, Jesus Christ, the Son. Holy are you, Holy Spirit, who lives in us by faith. Would you bless us, Lord, with an affirmation of your presence with us today and every day as we walk by faith in Jesus Christ, receiving the gift of salvation. Conduit, may the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the salvation of Jesus Christ, the Son, bless, preserve, and keep you all until we meet again. You are loved. Pray that you have a great week. Don't forget to uh, visit Abundance Market outside, and we'll see you again.